There's another lady I want to talk about today. She was a reluctant pawn in a chess match that she wanted nothing to do with. She was caught in a trap and she was invited to turn. And as she turned, she was confronted with truth. And as she saw the truth, she changed. And as she changed, she changed people around her. Her story is found in John chapter 8. If you're watching at home, you can listen on the screen, but I encourage you to open your Bible and look at the text. Its words are infinitely greater than mine. John chapter 8. You may see a little notation in your Bible that says, this passage wasn't part of the original manuscript. Don't be put off by that. Just wasn't captured in the first round of the canonization of Scripture. But it was a story that was shared around the church. Just wasn't captured until a few hundred years later. But it's not a new addition to Scripture. It's been there for about 1,600 years now. Before we get started, I just want to draw your attention to verse 2. It's a little off topic about what I want to talk about today in this lady who has changed so that she could change others. But there's a little nugget here that's so vital for us who have been changed. Verse 2 says, At dawn... He, Jesus, went to the temple again. At dawn, he went to the temple again. Jesus is going to go and perform this miracle. He's going to drop some words of wisdom. He's going to change the culture of those who were watching. But before he does, Jesus reminds us about the importance of soul care. Because if we're not nurturing our soul, if we're not replenishing our soul, then our souls become dry and there's nothing that can overflow from them. I think this verse, and I may be overplaying this because this is a discipline of, of, of mine in my life. I don't want to do that, but I just want to draw your attention to it. Jesus got up early and he started with worship. And he did it again and again and again. At dawn, he went to the temple again. I, I want to encourage you and I want to encourage us and I want to remind me that there is great value in getting up in the morning and letting your worship of God be the first thing you do and then doing it again and again and again. When we do it again and again and again, that consistency compounds, it grows. And as that discipline grows in our soul, God prepares us to use us in some incredible ways. Just want to remind you, there's great value in getting up a little bit early, creating a little more time in the day to spend with God and doing it regularly, that practice will change your life and draw you closer to God. So Jesus is at the temple 
again. That's the context. He's going there to worship, but he's also going there to teach, and he's going there because there are people present. And Jesus' ministry and his life and his love is directed at people. For God so loved the people of the world that he gave his one and only son. That one and only son wanted to be around people. The second part of verse 2 says, And all the people were coming to him. He was up early. He went to worship. He did it all the time. And he met with God and he met with people. This day, we read that he started teaching. It says he sat down and began to teach them. That's real important for the story. When a teacher went to teach, he, he would sit down. Now, in, in our society, in our culture, it's the other way, right? The teacher stands because he wants to have authority to teach. Authority looked a little different in Jesus' day for the teachers, and it makes a lot more sense. He sat down. When we sit down with someone, we're putting them at ease. Our posture is saying, we really want to help you. We really want to love you and treat you as an equal. I learned a number of years ago from a therapist that sometimes uh, when someone is out of order and needs to learn something, our, our tendency, especially as parents, is to stand up and direct what to do. She says, don't do that. If you want to train and change your kids from their temper tantrums, kneel down. Be, be gentle with them. I, I was in a meeting a few weeks ago. I was going back and forth with a, a guy. He didn't like what I was saying. I didn't like what he was saying. And halfway through the argument, he starts to stand up and walk towards me. And everything within me wants to stand up back. But I relaxed myself in the chair because that posture of putting people at ease is what defuses ugly situations. It what makes us more approachable. It's what opens the heart of those on the other side of the room. So Jesus sits down and he began to teach. And he was sitting down and people were in a circle around him. Verse 3. Then in almost a brutal, blunt way, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were also teachers, uh, maybe around the circle Jesus was teaching the theory, but here they were with the kind of sermon illustration. They barge into the middle of the circle and bought a woman who was caught in adultery and they made her stand in the center of the circle. Here's this lady that somehow they have trapped. Honestly, in our language today, 
some lady that they have trafficked, and they brought her right into the middle of this circle. All we know about her at this stage is that she's caught in adultery. She's probably not wearing many clothes. She's definitely clothed with shame. And she's trapped in the middle of this circle. Every eye would have been judging her. Every eye would have been writing her off. Everybody around that circle, including her in the middle of the circle, would have felt awkward. But we remember, as we've read time and time again, that Jesus often does his best work in awkward moments, right? This lady was trapped. She was treated as a commodity by these scribes and Pharisees. This broke Jesus' heart, and it should break our heart, because no person is ever just a commodity. They didn't know her name. They didn't know her story. All they knew was what they trapped her for, to use her for, her, for their purposes. They put the woman in the center. They shouted to Jesus in the most boisterous, ugly way, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such a woman. What do you say about this? John tells us, verse 6, they asked this for one reason, to trap him. In order that they could hear him say something that they could use as evidence to accuse him. Everyone's sitting down. Nice little teaching session going on. This woman that no one values is thrown into the middle of the circle She's trapped, and the scribes and the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. You know, the whole thing was a setup. I mean, think about this. What are the chances that the scribes and the Pharisees were doing a door-to-door sweep to see if anyone was in a adulterous relationship and in an adulterous moment, the reality is they probably said to one of their own or they hired someone and said, hey, this lady is married. We need to catch her red-handed in the act of adultery so we can get Jesus. Who wants to do it? That's probably why there's no guy in this story. Because the law of Moses said that both the parties were to be stoned. In fact, some, uh, some, some people interpret the law of Moses to say that if you're caught in the act of adultery, you aren't stoned, that you will be strangled. It was a big deal. But there's no guy here. Why? Because when they got the guy, they probably offered him immunity. You do this so we can trap her. 
We'll use her to trap Jesus, but we'll give you a pass because you're doing us a favor. The whole thing's a trap. The lady's trapped. And they're trying to trap Jesus. And that's what the enemy tries to do with us. The enemy wants to trap you. He wants to tell you you're not worth anything, which is a lie and a trap. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes come to this situation trying to settle a legal issue. What do you do? But Jesus doesn't see a legal issue here. He sees a moral issue here. So often as Christians, we've got to be leaning into the moral issues, the issues of the heart, rather than the issues of the law. Some of you know I was at a conference yesterday with a lot of people who believe differently from me. I got lots of stories from that, and I'm still processing them or share them another time. But one of them was the story of how David, this lead atheist, and I met. We were meeting in a school. He took issue and targeted us that, 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 that we were violating church and state legal legislative stuff. Maybe we were. But as he and I got to talk, I said, David, you got to understand that my desire there was based on the back of a national news story that showed people in our community, children who weren't getting enough food. That's one of the reasons we want to serve. And as we were talking and as we had that conversation publicly yesterday, we were moving the argument from a legal argument to a moral argument. And Jesus wants to move things into the area of morality because it talks to the heart. And Jesus, more than anything, wants our heart. They tried to trap him. What what do you say, Jesus? Do we stone her? If he says, yeah, we should stone her, then Jesus undoes a lot of the ministry that he's done the lost, the broken, the hurting, the nobodies, those on the the fringe of society. If Jesus says stone her, then he's making a statement that he may not be as for them as he said. But at the same time, if Jesus says, no, don't stone her, then he's violating the law of Moses and he gets in trouble for that, right? It was a trap. It was a trap. The enemy wants to set traps for us. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is loving enough and wise enough to know how to unlock the traps. And very simply, when we're in a trap, when it looks like we're stuck beforehand, before us and alongside us, Jesus says, you got to turn around and get out of that trap. That's what happens next in the story. The trap is set for the woman, for Jesus. It says, Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. Some theologians will tell you that here he's just buying time. Maybe he's making time to think. Maybe he's making time for them to repeat their questions 
for themselves. Other theologians, and I would tend to align with this, suggest that Jesus was writing something significant in the sand. Maybe in that moment, he was writing the sins of the the Pharisees and the scribes. Maybe in that moment, he was writing the names of the those in the, the, the circle, those in the chaos, who'd also committed adultery. In doing that, he's slowly setting the, the table for them to, to turn. Jesus stooped down. He turned away from facing the crowd and started to write. They were persistent in questioning him. This word persistent is better translated goaded. Come on, Jesus, what you got? We got you here, Jesus. What's your answer? You lose, we win one way or another. They persistently asked, questioned him. And so now he stands up. Again, if he sat down because he wanted to get his posture right, I think he stood up because he wanted to get his posture right. Now he wanted to be assertive because he was going to speak with an authority that needed to say something significant. He stood, and with all the wisdom and authority of heaven, he says, here's my answer. Here's how I'm going to respond to your questions. The one without sin among you should be the first to throw the stone at her. She was trapped. He was trapped. He turned around from them and thought it through. He stood up and he turned around the narrative. He says, don't you spend so much time blaming that victim. Don't you spend so much time treating that woman as a commodity. Don't you spend so much time playing these stupid arguments. Don't look at others. Look at yourself. He was turning the narrative around. He was turning the focus around. He was inviting them to turn around from a life that so easily and so quickly and so desperately loved to point out other people's sin. And he was saying, turn that finger around and point out your sin so that you can change. You know, in the church, we talk a lot about this word repentance. When we come to Jesus, we repent of our sin. The word repentance means Turn, change, go in a different direction. In the most awkward of situations where the trap has been set, Jesus says, turn, turn around. The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped to the ground again, continuing to write on the ground. 
Maybe he's writing more names. Maybe he's writing more sins. Maybe he's just been quiet to let this profound truth settle in. Verse 9, when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. It's kind of fascinating here how Jesus breaks out the crowd, right? You know, so often we, we think that the best way to change things is to join a crowd and to speak to another crowd. But here Jesus is breaking the crowd up. They left one by one. I'm in a little pastor's group with some pastors around town. One of them is, is Ted Wood, is at the Methodist Church. This year he's been preaching through the book of Mark. I'd love to go, but I got another commitment on Sunday morning. <laughs> And he says in his study of Mark, he's realizing that transformation happened when Jesus spoke to individuals. Crowds were all around him, but there's not much, much evidence that crowds changed. But there's all the evidence in the world that individuals do. And so here, with this truth, inviting people to turn, they leave one by one. Because issues of sin and judgment aren't something that get lost in the crowd. In this moment, they become very, very personal. They left one by one, starting with the older men. That's interesting too, isn't it? That those who'd been around a little bit longer were more aware of their sin we're more aware of their brokenness. We're more aware that they were disqualified from throwing the stone. You know, there's this real interesting dilemma that happens when we grow up in our faith and when we mature. When I was younger, on one level, I was more of a sinner than I am now, yet I thought my life was more perfect in terms of my sin management, right? Now, as Jesus has come in and has changed my life and he's cleaned up a lot of my life, I feel more of a sinner now than when I was convicting some of those other sins. How does that work? I think because the closer we get to God, the more we realize not how much we have together, but how broken we are. And so it was the older men who left first, one by one. A trap has been set. But Jesus says, you got to turn away from that stuff. And you got to believe the truth. What a statement of truth it is. Let him who has no sin cast the first stone. One by one they left until there was only one left. Jesus and the woman. 
See, previously she she stood in the center of the circle with everybody watching her, the crowd ready to shame her. Now the crowd was gone and it was just she and Jesus and they would have been standing face to face. Just her and the Son of God. And when we stand with the Son of God, when we get with the Son of God, when we see Jesus face to face, and all we can do is change. God, I need you. God, I want you. God, I am not you. Are. God, you see my sin and my shame, and I see face to face your beauty and your holiness and your grace. She's face to face with Jesus. Jesus stood to her. Woman, where are they? There's no one here to condemn you. Sure enough, if she looked up and took her eyes off her face, which I'm not sure she would have been able to, maybe she saw from the corner of her eyes that there was no one there to condemn her. As Jesus made this statement, he was making a commitment to go to the cross In this moment, he's saying, I got to do something about sin, otherwise, there will be some condemnation. She was setting her face on him, he was setting his face on the cross. Because it's on the cross where Jesus took her sin and our sin where he removed it from us, that there's nothing now for us to be condemned for because our sin is dealt with. What the Apostle Paul say in Romans 8, 1, there is, no, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of the cross. When Jesus said this, he's talking about the man, but he's saying, hey, there's no condemnation before God because of what I'm going to do for you as well. She sees this. No one's here, Lord, she answered. Then neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and do not sin anymore. Jesus is saying, when we're forgiven by him, which we are, which if you want, you can be, then there is no condemnation for us. But that's not a pass to go and do what we want. Jesus isn't dismissing her sin. He's saying, go sin no more. You you know, so often if we live in, in grace, it's easy to say about that sin, oh, it doesn't matter because grace will cover it. And we use grace like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Because you've received grace, go sin no more. We're trapped. And Jesus says, turn and understand the truth so that we can live a changed life. Changed people, changed people. In this moment, 
Jesus changes the life of this woman. Had she sinned? Sure. Was it a trap? Absolutely. Was the blame all hers? No. The blame went around a lot. But Jesus in his grace and in his promise and his forgiveness changed her. And this incident, this story, this changed life would have made a big dent, a big difference, a big change in the scribes and the Pharisees because they'd realized something about themselves too. And as the Sadducees and the Pharisees were changed, those that they taught would have been changed as well. This story, this truth of Jesus was a drop in a puddle that rippled to this lady who was changed, that rippled to some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were changed, that rippled to those who were taught because changed people change people. Changed people change people. This lady was changed by grace. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were changed by conviction. But in meeting Jesus, we're changed. And as we're changed, the call is to change people. 